Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would Yay! You, would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group where all of the delightful people are. They really are. It's my favorite little corner of Facebook. Yes, And me that too. says a lot, because I belong to, like, cute, fuzzy animal groups. <laughs> Fact. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 3, Episode 2, Roses Are Red, Your Lips Are Blue. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast, and I go by she and her. And I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official true crime creative, and my pronouns are she and her. Yay! Yay! So. <laughs> How you doing? It's, uh, <laughs> I was going to say it's been a week, but my computer's both broke immediately before the last recording right yep, yep. and then mine yeah. hiccuped but was hanging in there and then it's been a mercury is what it's been. <laughs> yeah it it was in the microwave yeah. it just there was nothing to be done there continues to be nothing to be done uh but we are we resilient. are we are resilient and kind of good at piecing things together. <laughs> so just just not in time for oh hey there's my husband. Woo-hoo. Yep, Kool Aid Manning in as we speak. So yeah, Mercury. It was in the microwave. Yeah, my desktop and laptop both died and. I am currently trying to resurrect my desktop for at least a little while longer, and uh, then you got hit. I did, I did, but uh, I pulled out. So I pulled out my my old faithful, uh, which I ironically named Furiosa. Um, <laughs> she's my white 2009 MacBook, and yes. she is a beast she's slow as shit but totally reliable and faithful and functions perfectly but can't upgrade enough to get decent recording stuff on so then i pulled out the 2012 one 
that had coffee spilled on it and has not <laughs> been booted up since it went kerfluffled um, pre-pandemic. <laughs> um, and I managed to, that's what I'm on now, um, with the aid huh? of a giant whomping plug-in USB uh, keyboard because I can't get the, the keyboard is, the keyboard is not right. Um, but the trackpad still works just fine and knock on wood we're uh we're gonna do it we're gonna do it we're gonna make it through until i can uh get a new one which i mean it was time for a new one anyway but nobody likes to be forced into it no no and oh listen i love my computers <laughs> but come on right and it sucks because like last weekend uh, I literally read two whole books, just powered through two books, which that's great. Young me would be like, really, that's it. Just two books in a weekend. Uh, uh-huh. But it has been <laughs> so long since I just lounged and read and they were good books. I read um, Anatomy, a love story which is about, uh, takes place in the 1800s, and it's about a, uh, a gal who is not quite, she's very, very upper class, meant for somewhat royalty, like pre-betrothed at birth to a Viscount, but she wants to be a surgeon. Um, it also has, like, body snatchers in it. It's pretty fun. Um, and then I read... Interesting. Rock paper reminds me of the Spindle Cove series by Tessa Dare. Yeah, um, and then I read one called Rock Paper Scissors, which was super fun and kind of mind twisty, and um, uh, and I liked that one a lot too. But it was really great. Like I felt so good because part of my 2022 is like, dude, I'm just gonna do things that I like to do when I want to do, and I make some time for that. So yeah. So the the week I- has been trash since then (laughs) but that part amazing well you know what though it's fine yeah it's fine it's fine yeah um i am trying and failing to read once in future witches by alex harrow um is she is represented by the same literary agent that I am, and I hear the book is amazing, but every time I pick it up, something else occurs. Yeah. So I haven't quite gotten there yet, but... I've I... been inching back into reading, but I do it, like... So when I get into bed at night, instead of scrolling, <laughs> I've been reading, and then I pass out while I'm reading. <laughs> Listen, I feel called out. <laughs> I am... I am the same way. So I, it takes Xanax me is like, <clears throat> excuse me. I, okay, you you also have to acknowledge you've received like, you know, Instagram DMs at 3.30 in the morning from me going to check this out. So it's not like. <laughs> I mean, okay, fine, fine. I Neither mean, one of us are great right, I at sleeping. Fully posted in the, in the Facebook group in the middle of the night that's like, hey, I just watched this, so you have to too. <laughs> hmm. Yep. And I am always also still awake. <laughs> yeah. Because I am currently keeping vampire hours, it would seem. And that's, and that's okay. It's okay. No sunburns for me. Not that I was going outside anyway, but 
So the Lunar New Year and the new moon and uh, Imbolc and Mercury going direct. All of those things. Those are happening. Have happened. Yeah. I think Lunar New Year lasts quite a bit. I think it lasts several days. At least in some... I think it's the at least in like the Korean culture, I believe it lasts at least five days. I, I could no be completely idea. wrong on that. I swear I saw a TikTok on it, <laughs> which I should not be getting my education strictly from the TikToks, but no. I mean, I I have been to the Lunar New Year celebration in Chinatown, but it's been a long time. Um, mm, mooncakes. Yeah. I don't know. I've never had one. Because you have all the allergies. <laughs> all of them. All Every of single them. one. Everyone. Well, except gluten. Thank goodness. <gasps> oh, so I didn't mention. Uh, I know I posted in our Facebook group that there is a uh, a really cool gal on TikTok who bought a starter, a sourdough starter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's dehydrated. Um, And the starter is said to have dated back to... The Black Plague era. Listen, I want to see the chain of custody. Right. And that's the thing is that like a ton of people have come after about it being authentic or not. And she was eh, like. Who the fuck cares? It's a good story. Pretty much. Like I felt she was like, I don't, I really don't care. Like I, it's for fun. And she made cinnamon rolls with it the first out the gate. Yeah. But I ended up getting um, a starter called The Wharf, which is supposed to be from the pretty much the fisherman's wharf in san francisco which i'm super excited about because my eldest is all about sourdough lately and i kept telling him about uh my favorite place on the wharf where they would bake these sourdough bread bowls and then they would catch clams in the morning and make like homemade clam chowder and fill the soup bowls with so i'm excited to be able to to do that gross um (laughs) but i also have um I have a 200-year-old San Francisco sourdough starter. Nice. Um, that I have had for many years. I mean, and also just the thought of, like, feeding it and it being a living creature is pretty fun. Yeah, like, I need to feed mine. It's science. been hibernating. Um, but, yeah, I, it's very satisfying to revive a sourdough starter, in my opinion. I agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's cool about the the possible plague era bread. And I'm sure people are freaking out about, you know, the plague, but they probably <laughs> have not caught up to recent medical advances with regards to that. <laughs> right. Like, it's no yeah. longer really a thing. That You're going to be all right. Be that <laughs> We got other yeah. things to worry people, about right people now. People do get plagued. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Um, oh, I used to joke that the when I get every every fall, I get this like sinus ear infection, just swamped, and I always referred to it as my plague. And I once jokingly called it that <laughs> to the pharmacist who was had zero sense of oh, humor. No. I was like, <laughs> "You cannot say that. I will need to call the CDC." And I was like. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Like, I'm just real sick and I'm trying to have a sense of humor. Can I please have my antibiotics now? <laughs> just... I mean, one 
that's hilarious. And two, <laughs> I don't think plague's that big a deal anymore. It's, I don't think so either. I mean, I well, so. I, viral plague, maybe, but uh, bacterial? I don't know. Anyway, go team modern medicine. Really into Indeed. it. Indeed. Oh. Yes, am I. I just touched the wrong keyboard again. Um, <laughs> yeah, for context, those of you who might be listening to this, I am trying to revive my desktop, and my keyboard for my desktop is in the keyboard drawer directly below my laptop, so I keep reaching for the wrong one. Which happens. It does. It happens sometimes. Ah. Uh... So, hey, should we take a quick break to thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon? Yeah, I think so. I think so, too. This here is the point of the podcast where we would give a totally normal and not at all creepy welcome to our newest members. Today, we do not have one, so we'll just give all of our members together a shout out yes we love you you are the best and we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you absolutely Mm -hmm. and if you want in on this fun not only are you going to get some really great surprises that we absolutely are working (laughs) on like uh february 12th i have a Knitathon. I am participating in Ways Awareness for Food Insecurity. Oh yeah, where I am raising money to feed uh, for Feeding America, World Kitchen, No Kid Hungry, and Meals on Meals. Um, and I think I'm going to do a knit while watching, maybe some supernatural, maybe some true crime, maybe some ghosty stuff. Nice. Um, maybe we can all laugh at Zach together. Oh, dear. Um, but kind of some like a live craft and watch stuff with our Patreon members. Um, also, I am almost done, uh, barring technology issues with, I was working on a little Valentine. You better knock on literally everything. I am knocking on, knocking on the things, which the cats just looked at me like, what the Yeah, heck? so did mine. Uh, but also, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you also get a huge, huge backlog of Patreon-only episodes. Including next week where we talk love tokens, both endearing and weird. It's true. It is very true. So check it out. Yeah. Do it now. Or, you know, wait till the end of the episode. Whatever. You do you. Indeed. Uh, so. On the subject of... Mm-hmm. Valentiny and love related things. Uh, yes. What do you want to do first? Do you want to talk about Valentine's or do you want to talk about love spell murders? I. It is entirely up to you. It's always up to me. You pick. <laughs> um. Let's see. Should we start with love and end with murder? <laughs> like... I think that's fine. Hit me with some love. <laughs> Let me. <laughs> love, true love. It's what brings us together today. Do you know that my spouse looks just like Wesley? Uh, oh, 
that's a keeper. Mm-hmm. That's a keeper. Just saying. <laughs> and if you don't know what I, we're talking about, I don't know, you might want to re-examine <laughs> your priorities. Seriously. So, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe not true love, but, you know, love it or hate it. Valentine's Day is right around the corner. True. Uh, and so today I'm going to talk about the history of Valentine's Day cards. All right. So, like the actual holiday itself, there's a, there's a bit of debate about who for, was the first to send a Valentine's Day declaration of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, some sources uh, uh, state that down and out, uh, St. Valentine himself was the first. Oh, St. Valentine. Uh, wah, wah. Yes. Officially known as St. Valentine of Rome, mm. not to be confused with the oh, dozen or so others known as St. Valentine. Really? Uh, <laughs> oh, it is saints. said that this temple priest was beheaded for helping Christian couples marry. Just let that sink in for a bit. Uh, but legend also tells tale that he was in love with his jailer's daughter. Uh-oh. And allegedly sent her a little love letter before his execution. But uh, it's the Catholic Church, so there's a ton of confusion as to what the truth of his life and death really actually are. In fact, they discontinued liturgical veneration of him, ironically, in 1969. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yet he still appears... (laughs) Nice, right? Uh... Yet he still appears on the uh, very long list of saints. So not sure what the deal is exactly. But again, Catholic Church. Um, I mean, there are like 50,000 different Marys. So seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell that I was not raised Catholic? I can't. You weren't either, (laughs) right? You were raised Lutheran. Oh, I'm a recovering Catholic. Uh, I was raised Catholic, but I was a shitty Catholic. Um, yeah. Well, all right. Then you're no help. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, so the day itself was designated as the Feast of St. Valentine by Pope Gelasius in 496 AD. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're talking far back. Uh, now the day also shares history with a Bronze Age pagan Roman celebration held on February 15th called Lupercalia. That's the day before Um, my birthday. (laughs) The, uh, so this pastoral festival, um, again, was observed annually on the 15th, and it was to purify the city, promoting health and fertility. And how did it cast evil spirits out of the town and then welcome in health and fertility? Oh, please tell me. (laughs) Well, it wasn't with lovey-dovey candy hearts. Uh Uh-oh. Instead, it was people smeared with, uh, they smeared their foreheads with blood and ran through the village wearing wolf skins. Whose blood? And that's like the, I don't know, that's the G-rated version. Okay. On whole, it was a bloody, violent, sexually charged celebration awash with animal sacrifice, random matchmaking, all kinds of coupling in the biblical sense. I guess uh, they were um, feeling visceral. <laughs> <laughs> it was a party. Uh, and there's much, much more to Lupercalia. 
Uh, and I suspect that we'll do a deep dive in the future on it. Uh, but you get the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. That, you know, these these two things are smack butt up against each other. Um, so still others credit the medieval poet Joffrey Chaucer well, well. with having possibly inventing the holiday somewhere around 1375. Uh, and that's when Chaucer wrote a poem called The Parliament of Fowls in which he links courtly love to a celebration of St. Valentine. The poem specifically refers to February the 14th as a day when birds and humans both go in search of mates. I don't want to know why it was specifically just birds and humans, but you do you, Chaucer. Maybe he had Uh, a pair of morning doves outside or something. What is possible? I don't know. Uh, But the manuscript collection of the British Library in London holds the oldest known surviving Valentine, a poem composed in French in 1415 by Charles Duke of Orleans to his wife, which he sent while imprisoned in the Tower of London after the Battle of Agincourt. And while my To his actual wife? That never happened. Right? Uh, I mean, like, that was a keeper in those times. Now, while my French is continuing to get much better, and I'm on a 236-day streak, I'm still reading the English translation because it's a little long, and I'm not quite there yet. So this sweet little ditty goes a little something like this. I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine, since for me you were born too soon, and I for you was born too late. God forgives him who has estranged me from you for the whole year. I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. While I might have suspected that such a destiny thus would have happened this day, how much that love would have commanded. I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. Which, I mean, fair. (laughs) I mean, was he Uh, way older than her? (laughs) I don't know. Mm. Uh, Now, there also seems to be a slight correlation between imprisoned men and debauchery in this holiday in general. Uh, Well, I mean, everybody got thrown in the Tower of London at some point. That's true. Um, And I'm guessing it was a little lonely. Uh, But the, yes, the British Library also possesses the oldest known Valentine in the English language. And it was a poem comprised in 1477. By a woman named Marjorie Bruce to her fickle fiance, John Paston. In this letter, Marjorie describes John as her right well beloved Valentine. Well. But the 17 or by the 17th century, Valentine's Day gets a shout out in William Shakespeare's Hamlet when Ophelia is given the lines, Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning betime. And I am made at your window to be your valentine. Mm, that's cute. Yeah, a little sweet. Um, it's a little sweeter than, you know, I'm sick of love. Um, however, uh, it was in the 18th century that um, I would argue that the most well-known valentine's poem, uh, perhaps even poem in general, yep. made its first appearance. And it was found in a collection of nursery rhymes printed in 1784. And it read, the rose is red, the violet's blue, the honey's sweet, and so are you. Hmm. 
And because history is fun, it turns out that while this was the first appearance of the poem in this form, many date its origin its origins back to Sir Edmund Spencer's 1590s epic, The Fairy Queen, which featured the lines, she bathed with roses red and violets blue and all the sweetest flowers that in the forest grew. I personally think that's a bit of a stretch. Like, you, you talk about roses and violets and sweet flowers. And, I mean, those were popular flowers in the time, so, eh. I don't know. I, I feel all right about that connection. I also yeah, like I the second like version better. It is. It is. Uh... More lovely. Uh, so, we've got a brief idea It breaks a cardinal when... rule, though. What is that? We don't fuck with the fae. Oh, duh. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Obviously. Come on. Obvious. I don't know what I was thinking. You uh, weren't. No. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. It won't happen again. So, we have a brief idea of when Valentine's Day originated and a bit of a sense of when flowery words were put to paper. But when were the, like, Valentine cards, cards themselves actually, like, a thing? So history has it that the first Valentine cards were sent in the 18th century. And, of course, they were, like, nothing like the mass-produced cards that we've got now. They were all, like, delightfully handmade. Uh, Mm. Lovers would decorate paper with romantic symbols, including flowers and love knots, and awful including, like, Puzzles and lines of poetry. And lacks of hair. <laughs> yes. Uh, you could even, if you if you were not inspired, you could even buy books like the 1797 classic, The Young Man's Valentine Writer, that offered guidance on selecting the appropriate words and images to woo your lover. <laughs> I really <laughs> want to see that book. I tried to find that one. I couldn't, but I found another one. I think I linked it. If I didn't link it, I won't make sure that I linked it. It was for women. It was not a young man's one. Uh, these cards were then slipped secretly under a door or tied to a door knocker. And during this time, individuals may have also sent St. Valentine's keys to one another with the message being, unlock your loving heart. Um, oh. And these these keys were also apparently used to uh, ward off epilepsy, which was then also known as the St. Valentine's Day malady. There's a story in there, I'm guessing, that I could not find. Uh, um, huh. Is that just, I mean, I guess excessive swooning might. Maybe. Oh, yeah, I guess. I hadn't really Look thought seizure-esque. But I don't know they really had a definition of epilepsy. Yeah, there's... Like a diagnosis? Got to be... I mean, wasn't it just, um... Oh, fits. Yeah, the fits. The fits. Uh, yes. Yeah, I don't know. Listeners, if you know way more about the history of medicine and also Catholic saints, hit us up. Yeah, and why a key would fix epilepsy. Like, I, maybe they were super heavy, you just put it on their chest, they didn't flop as much. I'm not sure. Like, I I mean, keys, I generally speaking, are very powerful magical symbols. Oh, that's true. The Catholics would not like that. The Catholics would just turn it into a cross <laughs> and be done with it. Right? <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. They'd steal it. They'd appropriate it and morph it into what they wanted You're it like, to be. You're like, no, it is a key <sighs> to the tabernacle. Kingdom. <laughs> Kingdom of God. Well, it happens. So, <laughs> it does. Uh, in Georgian Britain, the, that's where pre-printed cards first began to appear. Though they were not yet as popular as they would eventually come, um, the oldest surviving example does date back to 1797, uh, which is the same year as the Young Man's Valentine Writer. The That's later than I held, would have guessed. Right? Uh, this card uh, is held at the York Castle Museum and was sent by one Catherine Moss Day to Mr. Brown of London. It is decorated with flowers and images of Cupid, which a verse printed around the border that reads, Since on this ever happy day, all nature's full of love and play, yet harmless still if my design, tis but to be your valentine. Well, that's sweet. But it is very sweet. Mr. Brown is... How many of those must have lived in London at the time? I'm just right. trying to consider delivering that right <laughs> right uh so it was the early 19th century uh that the industrialization of britain hit and with that rapid advances in printing and manufacturing and that's when it became super easy to mass produce valentine's day cards and they soon became immensely popular it was estimated that by the mid 1820s some 200,000 valentines were circulated in London alone. Wow. The introduction of the uniform penny post, uh, which is, um, long story short, a component of the comprehensive reform of the Royal Mail, um, which was the UK's first official postal service. That also took place in the 19th century. Oh, this is like postcards, um, right? Yeah, like, and in 1840, it bolstered the popularity of Valentine's Day cards yet further. Um, and reports suggested by the late 1840s, the amount of cards being circulated doubled and then doubled again in the next two decades. Wow. So they had mass producing, they had uh, really cheap postage. So it was, you know, you could you could send them all out at once rather than having your... I know, your footsmen deliver them or whatever they did in the past um, for the uppity folks. So many Victorian Valentine cards have survived. And they really are something to look at. They're, they're very, some of them are very sweet. Uh, there's not, I didn't find nearly as many weird ones as I was hoping for. <laughs> uh, but the most intriguing is a collection of over 1,700 examples that is held again at the Museum of London. Um, this is the archive of a stationer named Jonathan King, who ran a card-making enterprise in London. That's cool. Uh, it is very cool. The collection has been digitized, and it demonstrates, like, the huge array of designs and verses and sentiments that were popular with lovers in Victorian Britain. Again, you've got, um... We've got elaborate paper lace work, embossing, and other intricate designs. The more expensive the card, the more elaborate the design would be. Um, and this would then correlate to how much your lover, you know, like how much your lover loved you was how much he spent on the card. Right. 
Um, which is <laughs> is kind of a concept that is stuck, if we're being honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, Not wrong. Like it's, you know, uh, typical imagery, as I already pointed out, was flowers, love knots, and the cupid. Though hearts were sometimes used, uh, Victorian cards did not feature the well-known stereotype like red heart, uh, typical of Valentine's Day cards uh, that we have today. Lucy Worsley visited the collection in her October of 2015 BBC series, uh, A Very British Romance, and I believe it's episode two of the season. Uh, and I put a link to uh, where you can watch it uh, on PBS and also on the BBC. Mm -hmm. uh, the program featured the most elaborate card collection, which was, again, made by Jonathan King um, for the woman that he loved, actually. Oh, that's um, nice. Right. Uh, so this huge, there's a huge card that like has layer after layer of lace. It's decorated with embroidery and beads and ribbons and shells and has many lines of poetry and even a secret concealed card inside featuring a paper chest of drawers. And wow. each drawer lists, lists a womanly virtue. Blech. Uh, but in the final drawer, in the final drawer is a gold ring. This suggests that the card actually served as his proposal to his future wife, and she did actually accept his offer. That's kind they of went cute. on to they went on to have fifteen children. Well, I guess they liked each other. One of them was named, you guessed it, Valentine. <laughs> 15 kids i cannot i cannot no okay. fairly Ooh. certain my uterus would just fall out i mine would have tapped out of like not even close to 15 like i had two and i that was fine I'd, i mean um. i have zero and mine seems to have tapped out so <laughs> <laughs> so not all valentine uh, victorian valentine's day cards were so romantic however the less loved up were able to buy vinegar valentine <laughs> yes cards designed to insult uh which i it's a theory that i can get behind uh but these cards typically like poked fun at a man's profession or a woman's per like appearance mm. one example that survives in the collection of the university of birmingham Features a cartoon of a woman with a very large nose, and under the title, Miss Nosy, are the following lines. On account of your talk of others' affairs, at most dances you sit warming the chairs. Because of the care with which you attend to all other business, all their, others' business, you haven't a friend. Ooh. Which, sick burn. <laughs> Yahoo! Right? Uh, they did not play. Uh, sometimes men sent such cards to their male friends in order to mock them with examples featuring taunts about baldness or alcoholism. <laughs> uh, oh, that's wholesome. <laughs> right? It was clearly very insulting to receive a card like this, which is probably why uh, there's very few like relatively few examples that have survived because I'm fairly certain many of them were ripped and burned and I was gonna say and immediately just... into the fire. <laughs> Ex 
exactly. Uh, although I do like, uh, I do like the thought of sending like a little bit of a sick burn, but in fun, but not one that's so harsh. Uh, not picking on like physical features. Yeah, I mean, you know, a good joke. All right. Yeah, but yeah. So other conventional, unconventional cards were less vicious, however, and reveal the Victorian sense of fun. One example at the York Castle Museum features a lock of real human hair fashioned into a mustache. <laughs> the card reads, For the new woman with St. Valentine's hairiest greetings and best hopes that she will receive another mustache with a man attached. <laughs> I kind of love that. <laughs> I was going to say that one tickles me and I really do think it's fun. Like that super fun um yeah i mean it's it assumes an awful lot about one's preferences but also right that's hilarious yes it's it's the perfect amount of cheeky i think i agree um by the mid-19th century the valentine's card made their way across the atlantic and rapidly gained popularity in America, where they were initially advertised as a British fashion. Mm. Uh, advanced American technologies meant that more elaborate cards were produced cheaply, which further encouraged their popularity. In 1913, Hallmark Cards produced their first Valentine's Day card, representing a key development in the commercialization of Valentine's Day. Uh, Interesting. Thanks in large part to marketing campaigns. Valentine's Day has today become not a like a time not only for sending cards, but flowers, jewelry, perfume, chocolates. That's pretty much the the key elements. And now you know that this is this annual celebration of love is anything but modern, but we've managed to, you know, just commercialize the shit out of it and it's I don't think it's as fun. I like the thought of hand-making cards and... Yeah. Even though I don't understand why a key would cure epilepsy, you know? I think it's sweet that you would want to cure somebody's epilepsy. It's nice. I... At least it's not attached to a chastity belt joke. Right. Right. There was a lot. I was... I was a little concerned. I was a little concerned. Um, (laughs) But I didn't dig up too much problematic stuff. That's Just probably the, for the, the best. Vin- I'm sure there was plenty out right. there. Oh, I I'm sure. But thankfully, I managed to uh to steer clear of it. So yeah, that takes us to once once Hallmark took hold of it, you, the rest is pretty much history. But right. Um, but I I think it's a it's a fun little John. It's also again interesting that uh you know it's something started so very long ago. Allegedly, um, and it has withstood time for so long. I mean, love notes are pretty timeless. Yeah, they are. Oh, um, I went through a phase of where I read just book after book of love notes, like Simone de Beauvoir's letters to John Paul Sartre, oh, yeah. and just uh, there's something so wonderful and romantic about times where you couldn't just send a text or an email and you had to wait for like post to arrive and you know people had entire relationships 
you know, just by written word. And a fuck like ton that. of overthinking. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's me all the time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, now you have it. Hmm. Valentine's Day cards. It's coming up. I ordered some Valentine cards yesterday. Ooh. Because someone I know made some. <laughs> But, uh, so you might get one. I don't know if they'll come in time. Ooh. So I could, I could tell you what the one that I'm working on looks like. Um, or we could keep it a surprise. It's up to you. Uh, whatever you want. I will say it involves, so, in, uh, working on my business, like the Uberdork Designs things, along with more stuff for the patrons. I have come up with with the character of inspirational Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> okay. So the Valentine Valentine may be a little love note from Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. Well, well. Yeah. So yeah. <sighs> so do you want to hear about murder? Yes. I mean, <laughs> please. <laughs> okay. So, I was going to look into love spells generally, but then I came across this whole whirlwind of a multi-person murder spree involving hypnosis and, well, obviously I needed to go with that. Well, I mean, love notes, or love spells are generally a no-no anyway. For the most part. They are. And this is, um, yeah, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to tell you the story of Dr. Capolino's his, uh, historic, also historic, but hypnotic love spell murder. Ooh. Yeah. So the story of Dr. Carl Capolino. Um, who is a 30-something-year-old author and anesthesiologist and hypnotist uh, who was accused of putting his mistress under a hypnotic love spell and then also murdering two people. Um, oh. So the story's very casual. Very casual. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The setting. Like many yes. bad ideas, this story begins in New Jersey. And I'm really sorry, but I'm in Brooklyn, and I'm contractually obligated to make this joke. There's nothing I can do about it. So, <laughs> um, sorry, New Jersey. Anyway, it was the early 1960s, and Dr. Carl Capolino was, as I said, an anesthesiologist. And his wife, Dr. Carmela Capolino was a medical doctor who was working for a pharmaceutical company. They were well-educated, they were both in their 30s, and they were seemingly reasonably well-off. And as far as I could tell, at this point, there weren't any glaring red flags popping up in their marriage or in other aspects of their life. It, it seems all right. But then something went wrong. Oh. Yeah. I couldn't really find any firm details as to what happened. 
uh, spoiler alert, because maybe it didn't. Um, but, ah. yeah, in 1962, Carl was rendered unable to continue his work in anesthesiology due to a heart condition. Huh. Yeah, and according to evidence that would be later presented at one of his trials, that condition might not have existed at all. Ooh. Yeah. So, I don't know what the condition supposedly was was or how it might have impacted his life but he cited it as the reason for his move away from practicing anesthesiology and focusing his efforts on writing and research isn't i think anesthesiologist at least at one point was the high had the highest suicide rate professions wise uh it's pretty easy to kill yourself with anesthesia so I wonder if that, that overlaps with drug use. Ha, ooh, uh, that reminds me of Cider House Rules and the ether addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, um, at least nowadays, I think that the, you know, it all trickle the, the blame trickles down. And I think that it ends up falling onto the anesthesiologist, which doesn't make any sense. But I don't know. But I, I think it's a stressful position, no matter what. Probably. I, I don't think Carl here was was fussed about any of that um so when he moved away from actually practicing due to the heart condition he also started working specifically on the subject of hypnotherapy for smoking weight loss and alcoholism and i think these were the only areas But descriptions of his books are hard to track down beyond the titles, and I don't have any interest in owning any of those. So... Makes sense. I went ahead and didn't. Yeah. But, anyway... Uh, oh, no. I've lost my spot! Oh, no. Wait, this is the first time. Shocking. All right. So remember that hypnosis part because it's going to come back later, as Mm. you may have gleaned from the description of, I have lost all the words, of the thing that I'm telling (laughs) you about. All right, guys? All right. Um, Interestingly, at about the same time as his heart condition would suddenly exist so too did his fbi file oh yeah it seems that someone had written threatening letters to a nurse anesthetist at riverview hospital where both Mm. carl and said nurse worked Uh and i just want to tell you that my lisp can barely handle saying that word so i hope i don't have to say it again (laughs) all right the end result was carl leaving the hospital with a heart condition and the nurse in fear fucked off to an entirely different state oh shit when you move in states you know something went real wrong right yeah uh someone 
smoothed it over by describing it as a hostile work environment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. And so with that, suddenly on the horizon, several red flags were waving proudly in the wind. But it could have all been fine at this point. Except for the part, you know, where he was a giant asshole. Because if he had just stopped there, like, Carl had disability insurance. And he was getting $22,000 annually, which $22,000 in 1962 dollars was just under 200000 today. So uh, that's a decent. Yeah, so he was doing all right. And his wife, Dr. Carmela, was still being a doctor. Oh, yeah. Double income, doctor level. Yeah. And I mean, she was just... a um a researcher in a pharmaceutical company, so I'm not sure if there was a difference in pay with regards to practicing. I imagine there was a difference in pay in regards to gender. She's a woman. But, um, still, that's plenty for him to just sit his ass down and chill. Yeah, right. So, either way, they were still living the good life. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's New Jersey. It's It's Jersey. Yes. Um, (laughs) there's a, a certain level of bougie that exists, and they were solidly within it. So now we enter their across-the-street neighbors and probable murder number one. Ooh. Yeah. So the Farbers, Lieutenant Colonel William E. Farber and Marjorie Farber, were both about 20 years older than the Coppolinos. And things started out innocently enough. The two families, you know, became close, like, you know, good family friends. And a very normal 1962 activity to be friends with the neighbors across the street. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point when Marjorie wanted to quit smoking, of course, she enlisted the help of Carl Coppolino, who just happened to specialize in hypnosis techniques that did just that. So everything at this point... Totally fine. Totally normal. Whether or not you're into hypnosis, like, there's nothing (laughs) especially weird about this. This is still a thing that happens today. Yeah. Yeah. Now, according to Marjorie Farber, during the sessions, she felt a growing sense of wanting to be close to Carl. Then one thing led to another, and they were making out. And then the next oh. day, they were fucking. I oh, I hate it when they Yeah, oops. <laughs> and, you know, that, that continued. Until at some point, in the not-too-distant future, in the middle of the night, the Coppolinos were awoken by a phone call from Marjorie. And it was reported that her husband, Bill, was experiencing all of the classic symptoms of a heart attack. So, you know, the the paleness, the sweating, the all of the things. The chest pains. 
Like, basically, you could have just opened a medical textbook and read the thing. Now, for reasons unclear, Marjorie didn't call an ambulance, but she had Carl come over. Hmm. Yeah. And... I mean, I get having you come over. Oh, yeah, me too. when you I also mean, call the like... Yeah, and so according to Carl, he was over there and he was trying to get Marjorie to call an ambulance and either she or she and the lieutenant colonel didn't want to. Either way, by the time he left... The lieutenant colonel wasn't looking great, but he wasn't in immediate crisis. Mm. And later that morning, according to testimony by Carl in his first trial, he returned to the Farber house to, once again, ask Bill to go to the hospital. And once again, for reasons, Bill refused. So, Carl made Marjorie sign a release, washing his hands of responsibility for Bill's care, because, you know, he didn't want to get sued. That makes sense. Now, at this point, this I have 62? several questions. Was it 62, you said? Yeah. 1962? Uh, I, okay, this so that might was... be 19... I think this is 1965. Um, okay, but it's still prior to 911. It was my whole thing. Yeah. Oh, no, it's 1963. Sorry. Um, okay. But yes, prior to 911. Now, my question is, A, why are we calling the anesthesiologist and not the medical doctor who lives across the street? Oh, shit, yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, they're both doctors. They both went to medical school, but... Right, but different specialties. Yeah, for sure. And I guess in anesthesia, you'd probably have to know a lot about the cardiovascular system to, you know, not kill someone. But I don't know. It's... I just have questions. Yeah. yeah. So he made Marjorie sign that release. And then at the trial, Marjorie did confirm that there was a release and that the signature on it was hers but that she had absolutely no recollection of signing it. So, oh. hmm. And then, later that night, the evening of the heart issues, not of the trial, Bill was dead. Oh, yep. shit. And Carmela, Carl's wife, signed the death certificate. Uh, uh-huh. Okay. And the certificate read, quote, I hereby certify that I attended the deceased from 3.30 a.m. to 6 a.m. and that I last saw the deceased alive at 1.30 p.m. on July 30th, 1963, and the death occurred at approximately 4 p.m. from coronary thrombosis. Uh, Note that um, she attended the deceased... No, she yeah, didn't. What, what, right? Yeah, right? So, alas, New Jersey state law requires doctors to be practicing medicine in order to sign death certificates. That makes sense. Yeah. And Carmelo was a medical doctor 
yeah. But she was also a researcher. She was not a practicing physician. Ooh. Yeah. So, the death certificate was eventually deemed fraudulent. Would that constitute malpractice then? Probably, but I don't. Why would you do that? I don't understand why you would do that. Like, I don't. I... Because you're afraid of your husband. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I think that's why you might do it. <laughs> yeah, that'll probably. Yeah, I mean, I'm just guessing. Um, and she ought to be because, um, <clears throat> foreshadowing, there's a second death. Oh, shit. Yeah. All right. So in trial, Marjorie testified that Carl had been telling her for some time that her husband, quote, has got to go. And then, according to her, he supplied her with a syringe filled with anesthetic, which she claimed to have ultimately been unable to administer. She chickened out, I guess. Okay. And Marjorie also claimed to have been hypnotized by Dr. Coppolino, rendering her helpless with regards to making her own decisions. And somewhat confusing to me is that later in trial it comes up that she then finally got the nerve to do it and mixed up her own poison concoction and stabbed him in the thigh. I don't know. What the poison concoction was. It apparently made him, him being the lieutenant colonel, jump up and yell about Charlie horses and then all of the heart attack nonsense happened. So. So she dispensed the liquid, the actual medicine that she was given, but kept the syringe, created her own solution, and then used the same syringe? I don't fucking know. I don't think she does either. Because I don't think she had anything to do with it. Um, well, and also are you going to be like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was hypnotized. Well, yes. But if you were hypnotized, then why wouldn't you? Like, if you were hypnotized, then you wouldn't have had hesitation to administer the medicine to begin with. I would think. It, yes. Um, Seems like selective. A selective, <laughs> selective hypnosis. Hypnos- well, the problem is that hypnosis doesn't work like that yeah i mean actual medical hypnosis does not work like that i am personally not hypnotizable but if you are you have to be willing to be in order in order for it to work it simply does not work if you are unwilling he hypnotized her with his penis. He did something. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, later in the trial, Marjorie then claimed to have been hypnotized by Coppolino in a way that rendered her helpless to do anything as she watched Coppolino smother her husband to death. 
Oh, that's a very different death. Yeah. In her description of how Coppolino had hypnotized her, Mrs. Farber seemed to go into a trance herself. And this is a quote from the trial transcripts. Um, Okay. She seemed to go into a trance herself on the stand, her head slouched to one side, and her eyes closed. Mr. Bailey, meanwhile, leaned forward from his seat in front of her and snapped his fingers again and again in an apparent attempt to arouse her. Uh. <laughs> Listen. So just talking about that dick just immediately transports yeah. you? I mean, shit. That must be some, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, with a heart condition, you wouldn't, like, that doesn't lend itself to... Rigorous. Virility. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. Whatever. Um, so, like I said, that's not really how hypnosis works. But it also kind of doesn't matter because she threw herself under the bus several times, but it wasn't her trial. Um, so then uh, <laughs> Capolino would testify in his own defense, which contradicted uh, his mistress in all ways except the following. They fucked, and he hypnotized her to help her quit smoking mm. and i wrote in my notes after that while i was researching sure jan <laughs> because <laughs> so um that's how i feel about that right in the end hypnosis and all he was acquitted of murder wow yeah but then he killed his wife. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's not funny, but it is, it, like, it's Jesus. It is just stupid. <laughs> like, you've already gone through it. <sighs> yeah. I, uh, why? Why would you do that? Whatever. So, after the burial of Lieutenant Colonel... The Capolinos were like, uh-oh, and decided that they needed to get out of New Jersey, and so they moved to Florida. Because I that is also do. where good ideas come from. Right. Yep. <laughs> and it would seem that Marjorie was still into... Uh, dude, Dr. Coppolino, enough that she also sold her home and moved to the same town called Longboat Key in Florida, and that's near Sarasota. Uh, well there. That's, that's a choice. That's a choice. Oh, it gets better. She asked the Capolinos if they would be godparents for her children because she was converting to Catholicism. I thought you were going to say Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Some sister wiving going on. Yeah. 
Wow. She, she's converting yeah. into Catholicism. So at this okay. point, it's 1965. So the... One suspicious death that was, let's be honest, almost certainly murder. Wait a Yeah, um, was a couple years in the past. And Carl was not content with one mistress. Oh boy. And Carl was 35. Just gonna put this out there. It doesn't necessarily That's mean much, but it does tend to not work this way with regards to men. But Marjorie was at that point fifty-four, and okay. Then he decided to also start dating Mary Gibson, who was fifty-two and a wealthy widow. Oh, yeah, bastard, Carl. Marjorie Good wasn't gosh. pleased. Yeah, I'm guessing not. Um, and then she went a little uh, spy happy private eye, like what would have been internet stalking if it were happening today. Oh, Margie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, poor Muffin. Yeah. Uh, now... Deciding that his marriage needed to go away, he, oh God, um, waited until the couple's wedding anniversary, like his and Carmela's, to inform her that he was no longer in love with her and... We actually don't know what happened because Carmela was dead 10 days later. What a dick. I mean, right? Like, you didn't have to do that, man. Seriously. Like, if you're going to kill her, why break her heart first? uh, Funny you put it that way. (laughs) All right. So, uh, when Carl card. When Carl called Carmela's family back in New Jersey, also just fun fact, Carmela's dad's name is Carmelo, and he's also a doctor, and so, man, reading all of this stuff was, I I feel like I need a crime whiteboard with strings. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so when... Carl called Carmela's family to tell them that she had died. He said that she had died of, quote, a massive coronary occlusion. And later, Carl would lie to Carmela's father, Dr. Carmelo Moscato, These are all just beautifully New Jersey Italian names. I just, just as an aside, oh, I love it. It makes me very happy. Um, Makes the Sopranos theme song play in my head. Right. (laughs) So he said to 
her dad, also the doctor, that the Sarasota, Sarasota County Medical Examiner had performed an autopsy and that they had found the heart problem. Yeah, I'm guessing dad didn't buy it. Uh... Mm, no. He was like, uh, my daughter was 34, dude. Right. And she was healthy. And he questioned the doctor who had been summoned and would eventually sign the death certificate. Uh, because the doctor, when she arrived... Well, Carmela was already dead, so there yeah. wasn't really any evidence aside from what Dr. Capolino said happened to his wife. Um, mm. There was, however, weirdly, an injection site on Carmela's left buttock. Okay, see, if they noticed that... Then... I don't think they did, or at least if they did, they didn't note it. I'm okay. not really sure. The doctor who signed the death certificate was Dr. Juliette Caro, and I don't really know how she knew these people. I mean, she might not have at all, and therefore might not have had any reason to think it was weird mm. and might have just trusted that two doctors in a household would know if one of them had a heart condition. Right. Which, I mean, I get it. It makes sense. Um, but Carmela's dad was like, listen, no. And he got in touch with the Florida authorities and was like, you know, my 34-year-old daughter hasn't ever had signs of heart ailments. P.S. I'm a doctor, so is she. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so apparently when the paramedics showed up and took away the body and did all of the things that you do when someone has passed away in a home, mm -hmm. um... The neighbors just assumed that it was Carl because he was known to have a heart condition. Not Carmela. Yeah. And I mean, frankly, he almost certainly did not have a heart condition anyway. But that was at least in his lore. Right. Yeah. So. Well, and heart conditions, I mean, just genetically, it, Statistically, rather, it's men versus, you know, women are more likely to have it, you know? Yeah, it is. And if that ran in the family, Carmela's dad, also a doctor, would have known. But, right. like, it, I mean, weird things happen. Sometimes young people have heart attacks. Like, this isn't beyond the realm of possibilities. It's just beyond the realm of credulity, given all of the context. Right, yeah. right. Like, if it was just average couple occurrence, but they were both doctors. So one of them would have noted, especially considering the fact that he allegedly had a heart condition. 
that would make him more hyper aware of. <laughs> Sorry, Jack is jumping around. Um, yes, it. I agree. But at this point, um, Carmela's body was sent back to New Jersey so she could be buried near her family. And Carl, six weeks later, was like, you know what? I'm going to marry me a rich old widow. And Mm. did not marry Marjorie Farber, but instead married Mary Gibson, the other woman he had been dating in a way that made Marjorie mad. I don't know how Carmela felt about any of this because nothing ever said. I mean, I assume she must have known, but well, I mean, he was he went on record, like, and the saying that he stooped the Marjorie. So it, she knew that that happened. I would be like, if you if you want to move down here to be with him so madly, like, I'll just stay back. Like, you can have him because. It's not like he was a stellar human being. Like, he was a piece of shit. So I'd have been like, here, have him. That's fine. Right. Well, I think, though, that the both murder investigations happened after the second death. So all of the things, I'm not sure if I misspoke earlier, but all of the things that were happening Uh, were sort of just gathering in the list of, ooh, uh uh-uh. Okay, so she... and I'm sorry, she she had to have known whether you want, you know what I mean? Like, it, and here's the thing, like, she had to have known that something was up with him and Marjorie. And then if he sat there on my anniversary and pulled that fuckery and been like, mm, I'm not in love with you anymore, I'd be like, that's fine. Oh, he like, gets I'd even like, worse. Oh, I don't like him. Mm-mm. I mean, I guess you don't get much worse than murdering your wife. But, um... Right. He added insult to injury, certainly, because you know how he didn't marry Marjorie? Yeah. You know what he did instead? What? Literally offered her a position as housekeeper in his home. (gasps) Oh! (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And that, I believe, would be his downfall. Ultimately, because Margie was like, uh uh, absolutely not. I am not, though. Yeah. Wow. So Marjorie went on back to New Jersey and went straight to the police. Good for Marjorie. Yep. Um, and the reason that she did that at that point instead of earlier she said um, was she was afraid that Carl would kill again since clearly he's already got a couple under his belt. And she said that she thought he might want to kill his current wife, which, I mean, wealthy widow, sure, maybe, but I'm pretty sure she thought he might want to kill her. I mean, yeah. Her as in Marjorie. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I'm I'm really pissed off about Carmela because I don't think she needed to die. I think she probably been like, you know what? That's cool. Go have the little old lady. I'm gonna take the kids. We go back to Jersey. Peace out. Yeah, you know? I don't think they had kids. Oh, well then, yeah, I definitely would have been like, bye. 
That's right. Marjorie had the Yeah. Kid, I mean, I could be wrong. So, Maybe yeah. they just didn't come up, but I don't think they did. Um, yeah, no, because that would make things trickier. But yeah. yeah, I would. I'd have been. I'd have been like, peace yeah. out. I'm gone. And like, so, I, under the guise of wanting to protect the current Mrs. Coppolino, hmm. Marjorie was like, "All right, let me tell you what I know." <laughs> let me get a little petty. Yeah, but. Marjorie didn't know that there were already investigations happening into states looking at Dr. Coppolino ah. as a possible killer. Be, but they did not, they, what they couldn't figure out was how he had killed Carmela. Um, so that was clearly before they found them? Yeah, and so okay. when... Well, no, they they found her all right. It's... No, no, but the the um, the puncture wound on her ass. Yeah, it was before they found that. Because, um, yeah, once you find that, it's not like you could... Unless you're super flexible, like, self-injecting on your butt is not... Self-injecting ideal. on your butt would be super easy. <laughs> <laughs> really? I, I mean, poke yourself in the butt with a pen. It's pretty easy. I suppose. Anyway, I, I don't think that she was injecting herself. Um, yeah, so this is the point at which Marjorie's thoughts on um, how her husband died, or maybe possibly concrete knowledge, started mm. helping. Specifically, the story about the syringe. Yeah. So this is how it turns out that it went down with his wife specifically. Because he was an anesthesiologist, he injected her with... All right, now we're going to have to buckle in for this word because okay. I don't... I have not found it said out loud. So it's... Super... Kinelicoline chloride? That's... I don't fucking know. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. chloride, I think. There are too that... many consonants sure. all together in that. But anyway, um, it's not very hard to find if you want to Google it. So that kind of OD is particularly hard to detect because the body contains succinic acid and choline. Okay. And so a whole ass test had to be invented by Joseph Umberger just to be able to prove this particular case. Ooh, yeah. that's fun. Yeah. I like that. Science. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, even though the case seemed kind of flimsy, the prosecutor, Frank Schaub, f- built a story around showing motive and opportunity and also the scientific background for committing the murder. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there that presented properly, yeah. I can see, being a pretty strong yeah. case. And... Apparently, Coppolino had persuaded the responding doctor who then signed the death certificate that his wife had been having chest pains earlier in the day. 
which is how the death was declared a heart attack. Um, which, again, that would put him at fault, though. I mean, I could see... Yeah, no. There's no way around it. Like, if you are a doctor and your doctor wife is having chest pains, like, there's no way that there's not... Yeah, but she... I mean, if she's having a heart attack, she is perfectly allowed to not seek treatment. I mean... Right, but... Or I, I feel like a lot of people uh, might feel a twinge and be like, eh, and wait it out. So, like, I kind of understand that i have had family members who have out of an abundance of caution gone in and found out they were having heart attacks Mm. um so it isn't that unlikely it's just very unlikely with a healthy 34 year old woman right so like i said earlier even though he called carmela's dad about an autopsy there was never an autopsy and i guess that the one of the motives laid out here was that finances had been getting tough hence the wealthy widow mm-hmm. because Carl upped Carmela's life insurance from 10000 to 55000 before mm. her death. And... Because that's not she. No. And Carmela had formally made... Oh, well, here's the information. She had formally made $16,000 as a physician in New Jersey, um, as opposed to Coppolino's disability insurance income of 22000 So, uh, yeah, that answers that. And Carmela, when they moved to Florida, I guess she couldn't pass the medical board exam for Florida. Like, I don't oh. know if she just didn't have time to study. I, d- I don't know what the deal was. But she failed the exam, so she couldn't work in Florida. And so, like, the life that they had been living ceased to be the life that uh, Carl wanted to live. But still a decent income for, you know, like... Oh, yeah. And so once the medical test was invented and then proved (laughs) that... Carmela had in fact died of that anesthetic overdose um, by way of puncturing her buttock, which buttock as a singular will never not be funny to me, and it's not (laughs) funny at all in this situation. But he couldn't even do it to her face, he had to get her from behind. Right? Fucking coward. Mm Mm-hmm. So, when this whole, you know, spoiler alert, being convicted of murder happened, some people were like, hmm, that's interesting. His mistress's husband died in a not dissimilar fashion. Oh, shit, the nurse? No, 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 lieutenant colonel. 
Farber. The first. Oh, year. okay. I thought there was like a nice. I thought there was a no, third. No, no, no. I was like, whoa. <laughs> no, his uh, his mistress Marjorie's gotcha. husband, Lieutenant gotcha, Colonel gotcha. Farber, who died of the heart attack. In quotes. At a yep. much more appropriate age for said. Oh yeah. Ailment. Which is why it didn't seem weird at the time. Yeah. But they were like, hmm. And exhumed the body. Aha! Uh-huh. And That'll get you. He's, uh, he was buried in, uh, I think, at Arlington Military Cemetery. Okay. And so he was easy to find. And the records were solid. So they exhumed the body and they found a fracture in the cartilage in his neck that suggested strangulation, but it also could have happened when he was being exhumed. He also had arteriosclerosis. So he could very much have died of a heart attack, as was originally claimed. So he was acquitted of the lieutenant colonel's murder, but he was convicted of second-degree murder um, in the case Mm. of his wife, Dr. Carmela, and they have, I believe, reverted to her maiden name out of respect because he was a fuckface. But they said nice, Dr. Yeah. Carmela Musetto. And this is going to make you really mad. Oh, no. So the date of the murder was August 28, 1965. He was sentenced in Florida on April 28, 1967. He was let out for good behavior after 12 years being paroled in 1979. Uh -uh. Mm Uh-uh. Is he still alive? I have no idea. (laughs) I don't Mm. think probably, but, um... What a dick. And motherfucker had the audacity to write a book called... It's called... The crime that never was about the murder. Oh, well, he was fuck in fucking prison. So hard. Uh-uh. Yeah. No. Oh. Yeah. So that is the story of oh, uh, the hypnotic love, not love. The hypnotic, terrifying Romeo killer. That's what I'm going to call him. I'm just going to call him a fucking dick. Yeah. Because <laughs> I just don't want... Yeah. So remember, kids, hypnosis does not work that way. And uh, only fuck around with Marjorie if you want to find out. Good honor, though. Right? Yep. Poor Carmella. Yep. <laughs> I just feel so bad for Carmella. <laughs> yeah. And so I want to round this out on a high note um, okay. and suggest a love spell for our listeners. Now, 
love spells are only ethical when everyone gives consent. But this one consent is, key. is great because it's a self-love spell. So yes. it's just for you, which is great. Um, I like it. Yeah. So the uh, fantastic witches over at House Witch in Salem. Oh, I love House Witch. too. Um, put out, I think it was last Valentine's Day, a love spell that I really liked, and I would, I would like to read the ingredients to you, because I just, I think it's lovely, and there will be a link included in the show notes for you to go actually get the full experience. Um, but... And it's house, H-A-U-S. Yes, H-A-U-S. Um, so what you need is your favorite outfit. Okay. A candle or candles, uh, pink or red if you've got them. A lighter or matches, a mirror, lotion or body oil, and chocolate. All right. Or your favorite snack, whatever that might be. Um... And then the entire spell is just setting the space and carving out some time, excuse me, carving out some time for you and taking care of you and just thinking that you're great. And so... Because you are. Yeah. So it is... um, It's all about making yourself feel like the best you that like however you feel the best it's about making yourself feel like that i like it that's our 2022 energy right there um it says in the spell whatever makes you feel beautiful sensual powerful and fierce do that because that is the vibe we are trying to embody yes Oh, I love yep. it. So, um, fuck Carl, but I love that. So, yeah, I'm not going to read the rest of it because I want you to go give House Witch some love because yes. they are great. And I believe Erica, the uh, head witch in charge, is the person who wrote this spell. Uh, and I also would ah, like to give a uh, hat tip to a website called the Malefactors Register. Oh. Um, I like the With name the of subheading that. crime, punishment, law, writing. Um, and the really well laid out deep dive that Mark Gribben did laying out this particular story in all its complicated moving parts it was super helpful while i was doing research because i found this by looking through newspapers at the time Mm -hmm. um i thought that i was going to find like people suing other people for fake love spells but that is not (laughs) what i found and so Many of my sources are, in fact, time period newspapers from New Jersey and the New York Times and also Florida. But 
um, Mark Gribben really, really helped make the story cohesive in my mind. And so there's obviously awesome. going to be a link to his work, but it is definitely worth the read. I will totally read it. Yeah. So you know what? What? I think. <gasps> I think that brings us to... <gasps> The weekly, <laughs> the weekly worst words. way to Wait. discordantly Ooh, die. die. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like mine is pretty obvious this week. Um, hypnosis gone think, very wrong. Yeah, I think mine is pretty obvious too because mine is beheaded like Valentine because that was long before the guillotine. <laughs> Ouch, man. If yeah, you didn't get was, a skilled uh, uh, executioner. That was before the Iron Age. Oh, my God. That was before the Iron Age, too. Like, I don't even know how they beheaded somebody back then. I mean, rocks? Oh, God. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure, worst way. Like, I... Mm-mm. I mean, nope. there were definitely... I am sure that they're... Well, I mean, Bronze Age. So... I think there are right. knives and swords from... Anyway, um, whatever. The point is, neither of those would be great. Um, right. If you have a weekly worst way to die, tell us about it. Even if it is not yeah. related to any of this. If you just have one that is really sticking in your head. Right. Absolutely. Also, mm-hmm. do you want to be spooky internet friends? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <clears throat> I'm just kidding. Let's yes. Die. Let me cry. Um, you can find us at Bones and Bobbins on all of the social medias. You name it, we're there. We may not have content like on TikTok, but someday we will. Um, or you can just find us at bonesandbobbins.com. It's true. And you should not forget if you would like us to be your non-murderous valentine um to rate and review this podcast that is actually a great place for you to tell us how you would especially not like to die this week um absolutely or even your favorite valentine yeah like that yeah all anything poems to your beloved i mean if we get any of those we may oh. well just read them out on the next episode oh. because yes. that'd be fun. Um, yes. Anyway, if you go rate and review our podcast, it will please the internet gremlins. And that's how we will show up in recommendations so the other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls! <laughs> yes. And on that note... Let us leave you with some advice that you should never, ever forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. And consent is important in all activities. So important. Like, at the top of the Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.